I do a little whitewater rafting and I took a swift water rescue course and the whole course took place in the river, not in boats. And one of the first exercises we had to do was walk out as far as we could into this raging whitewater by ourselves. And there's a technique for doing that. And then we slowly added people. And by the time we had about six rescuers moving out into the water, it was amazing how stable and how easily we could move into this terrifying and powerful current. And in some ways in my mind, that is religion at its very best. Hello and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast all about living lives that unleash courageous love in small and big ways. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and today I am joined by Foothills Senior Minister, Reverend Gretchen Haley. Welcome to the podcast, Gretchen. Hey, thank you. I've been actually listening to the last couple episodes. I'm a big fan, so I'm really glad to be here and get to join you for the podcast. So Gretchen, help us locate where we are in this series. This is our third episode exploring the intersection of rage, grief, and goodness. In the first one, we heard from Reverend Karen Hutt about rage and compassion and how those are connected. Reverend Elizabeth Wynn, last episode, shared about how grief fills our heart space and that the only option to move through that is to grieve. Who, who are we hearing from today? Who did you get to be in conversation with? So today we're actually going to talk with a minister who is here local in Northern Colorado, the Reverend Joseph Moore. We actually had planned to do a shared conversation with both Joseph and another local colleague, the Reverend David Williams. But in talking with the two of them, we just ended up with so much wisdom and insight. We felt like we needed to give a separate conversation to each of them. In a, in a couple of weeks, we're going to come back to the conversation that I had with David. Both are just filled with so, so much insight. With Joseph, I keep thinking about his observations and his commitment to the ways that we need a community and especially a community of faith a community of um, spiritual practices that will help us find our way through the tumultuous waters of rage and grief so that we can find our way to goodness. It's a powerful conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. I want to dive into the conversation, but can you give us just a little bit of background on who Joseph is? I know Joseph from, he is a leader in the interfaith community. He is uh, a part of the Interfaith Council. He also is the coordinator for our clergy policing task force, where we look at use of force and work with the um, local uh, police department. And he also runs a local radio show uh, around called Faith Matters. So I've been interviewed by Joseph a couple times. So it was really a, it was a treat to be able to interview him and to turn the tables. Well, let's dive into the conversation. Joseph, welcome. Thanks for sitting down with me in this space, joining us for this conversation series. I want to launch right in and we're doing this, this conversation where we're exploring rage, grief, and goodness. When you hear about these three, these three topics, what rises up for you and where does your heart go when you think about these three things? Just so your uh, congregation knows, I, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. I'm connected at First Presbyterian Church at College in Mulberry, but my full-time job is with the Presbyterian Foundation. I serve about 900 churches as kind of a consultant and a resource person 
in Colorado, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Louisiana. So a very diverse stretch of the country from, you know, steamboat all the way to New Orleans. So I get to serve and listen to church people really across the country and my work every day. In that work, kind of as a pastor, there is a profound sense of loss and just sort of institutionally in the Presbyterian church. You know, we we sort of hold up this five-minute period in 1950 when uh, church life was perfect for a really small portion of the population in our country. And I'm not sure that in the 70 years since that mythical five-minute period in the United States, when white Protestant males had a moment of, we got it. I'm not sure we've ever really dealt with the grief that is just ongoing and perpetual, and we swim in it, in the particular world that I have been called to serve. And so there's a lot of sadness, just sort of institutionally. And then you add on top of that, the grief that comes from, we can't meet together. Uh, At least we can't meet together like we used to and the sorrow that comes from that. And then add on that, you know, some of the things going on in our society in terms of racial reconciliation and an awareness of white supremacy that both inspire lots of grief because we've got to own our piece of that. And that's really, really hard on its own, but then also rage, right? At injustice. And and then how do we do all that when we can't actually meet in person? And what does it look like to process these things and protest? And, and then, you know, kind of the core of our story about goodness, right? Like, you know, that there is this sense of goodness within people, even people with whom we disagree, but also acknowledging that systems aren't inherently good, right? And maybe that's sort of the original sin. So yeah, it's, it's, messy and complicated. And then when I bring it into Fort Collins with my role in the Interfaith Council, it's both heartening to hear that it's not just Presbyterian Christians that are experiencing a lot of those things, but in some ways, one of the things I think that unites faith communities across our our city is this sense of of shared grief and and rage, but also a, a hope and awareness of goodness. In those three words, we we really hear sort of life at its best and worst and messiest. It also struck me that those are words that go hand in hand, I think, with any religious practice. We, we don't use the term religion, at least in the kind of religious slice of Christianity that I live in. We don't tend to use that word very positively. And, and I'm on this quest to kind of reclaim that word. But part of kind of any religious or spiritual practice, I think, open space where we can explore grief and rage and goodness, and not just explore those feelings, but own them and live into them. I've been reading, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to check out Love and Rage. It's Lama Rod Owens' book. He talks about that rage and anger are, they are the souls crying out for an untended wound. It's a self-protection when the wound isn't being tended to. So if that is true, (laughs) I, I wonder what is the wound that you would say is the injury or the the hurt that we are protecting? What do you think your what is the wound you're protecting? Yeah. So speaking for myself, I think that 
I, I used the word paralyzing earlier in relation to the pandemic. There's something paralyzing about being a privileged person in a position, even marginally, to help affect change, right? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. I don't know, you know, I, I, I want to be an ally. I, in my more sort of hubris filled moments, I have prided myself in, in being an ally in various stages of my life and career. I think that maybe the pain point is, is owning my own personal, but also just sort of societal complicity in why things are the way they are. And that's a hard one, right? Like owning my sense of I'm part of the problem. I want desperately to be part of the solution. There's an awareness of, of just owning the fact that I can't help, that I am part of the problem simply by the place in society I was born into. There's, there's pain, I think, that goes along with that. And I don't mean that in a like, oh, you should feel bad for, for me or, or a white mainline liberal Protestants, right? Um, so that's a different kind of pain than, you know, other groups in, in our country have experienced, right? Their, their pain is more direct as a result, maybe of our complacency. And I also think there's something to admitting we have, we have, we have injured ourselves. We have sort of participated in self-injury of our souls, of our communal souls. And we need to own that so that we can then kind of move forward. I, I, there's a great magazine for, not just for preachers, but I don't know if you've ever heard of The Sun, but there was a, a, a writer once I, I read, he said, grief is the amniotic fluid of humanity. And I like that because it is hopeful that, you know, something new life comes out of amniotic fluid, but we've got to sort of swim through the grief and also own the rage and, and acknowledge where's that come from. I, you know, what you're getting at, what comes to mind is the power of confession, which is not, is not something we talk about too much in no. liberal traditions. But I think what you're getting to is, you know, the acknowledgement of complicity, the acknowledgement of intentional and unintentional harm that we have caused. And I don't know, I wonder if like, is, does confession live in your life? Does it live in your practices or in your ministry in any way? I grew up in a very different tradition than I, I than the one I currently reside in. And so, you know, it took a number of years, a great therapist to, to redeem the language around confession. I grew up in a tradition where confession was shame filled, oftentimes kind of designed to sort of say something publicly, to be shamed publicly really as a way of control. There was, I think, power components in that. I, ideally, I think confession at its best is not about power or shame, but it's about ownership and it's about freedom. Um, not freedom from our, the consequences. I mean, confession isn't about, oh, if I just say I'm sorry, I don't have to deal with the consequences. I mean, that's a cheap, cheap understanding of confession. When really, I think it's a practice that can open us up to ourselves, uh, to one another, and then to the universe, whatever language we want to use around that in deeper ways. Yeah. You know, I was just reading about, you know, different practices for dealing with folks that are either anti-vax or anti-precaution. And the point in the article was, you know, shame never changed anyone. 
And I, I think it's a really, you know, it's something that I think as ministers, we wrestle with a lot, you know, what, how to inspire or evoke human change and individually and systemically and the way the use of shame and religious tradition we both know is, you know, can, has caused all kinds of harm. And, you know, though it might have short-term gains in some people's eyes, the, 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 the sense of you know, what, where, where does liberation and abundant life come from? And starting from a path of shame doesn't tend to get you there. I have a, so the thing about shame though, is it, it's such a like easy, sometimes almost fun stick to wield, right? Like, like there is sort of low investment, good feeling when I, when I swing the shame stick, my son is a freshman at Pooter and he, he rides his bike to school and there are, there's a, a group of parents and some people standing outside the school protesting masks. And my son thinks it's ridiculous. He doesn't understand it. You know, and listening to him there, there is this sense of, of rage almost that like, you know, why are these people doing this? I don't understand it. And he's begun to talk about wanting to talk to them which I think is fine, but he comes up with these sort of wonderful 14-year-old quips that are totally driven, like they are shame-based quips that he wants, that he thinks these zingers are going to turn those protesters into allies. And so we've had a lot of dinner table conversations the last few weeks around what does interaction in that particular circumstance look like? What would fruitful interaction look like? What are your motivations? For interacting. Like if I'm honest, they're wonderful zingers. But then if I kind of step back from my own stuff, it's just not a fruitful way to move forward. And so I, I get sort of the, the, the shame impulse and it's terrible. I, I was thinking about our conversation and I don't know, the, the bigger cultural, the global forces swirling around and in particular that we're headed towards the anniversary of the um, September 11th attacks. So as we head into this particular anniversary, do you, you know, let's, let's just start with this question of confession and, you know, what is that, is that a fruitful way to think about how to move through this moment or is what, what do you see as forces of you know, moving towards goodness in the midst of these forces that feel so collectively like continued wounds. Yeah. I mean, in some ways that is the question, right? How do we move forward in a way that honors the very best in our traditions? I mean, when I, when I think about 9-11 in this particular moment, where 20 years later, I know Afghanistan is different than it was in 2001, but in many ways, it is the same as it was in 2001. The same people who were in power when we went in to take over are now in power in just about the whole country. It's a terrible place for women having, I can't, like LGBT folks there. It's like hell. So 20 years later, thousands of lives, trillions of dollars. There's a part of me that, that wonders, how can we not, as American people, not confess our hubris, our pride, our, 
our sense of moral superiority, our sense of waste. And I, I use that language carefully, but intentionally. I, I don't ever want to downplay the sacrifices that people have made. But, but this might be a moment where if as a country, we can't confess our brokenness, our lack of exceptionalism, then, then I think we're doomed. It's also one of these moments that that it is important that we know what's going on around the world. Like I need to know about the heartbreak people are experiencing sitting outside of, of the airport in Kabul. Like I have to weep and I, and, and I need to be able to read those stories. I also run the risk of, of, of almost being addicted to the terror on the other side of the planet. And then the risk is I, I don't see what's going on around me in my own neighborhood in North Fort Collins or, or what's happening in Colorado. And so there's an aspect of, of all this for me as we sort of have this stew of 9-11, 20 years later, the horror in Afghanistan, the Day of Atonement coming up for our Jewish brothers and sisters. I mean, all of that sort of seems like the perfect stew for us to admit we need one another. Um, we are broken people. And we have no choice but to continue to move forward, which I think at the end of the day, that's what confession and assurance of grace, no matter what tradition you're a part of, I think that's what it compels us to do. I think as individuals, which at the end of the day is all we can do. And so I guess what I would say to the, the people I serve, the thing I would hope for my neighbors is that while, yes, we have to maintain, we need to maintain this awareness of what's going on well beyond the, the borders of Fort Collins, I do think at the end of the day, really the only real change I get to affect is. And so I need to put my efforts here. Like what does racial reconciliation look like here? What does police justice or injustice look like here? Those are things that I can, that I can do something about. As heartbreaking as those scenes in Kabul are, I can't do anything about that, at least not in the same tangible way. And so my confession has got to lead me to some sort of tangible change. Otherwise, I'm not sure it's true confession, for, for lack of a better word. And I don't mean that judgmentally, but, but I think confession that doesn't sort of spur us somewhere. I would say the same thing about rage that doesn't move us in a direction. I would, I would question where that comes from. I really want to go back to... When you were talking about engaging and staying with the heartbreak. And I'm reading another book that I were kind of engaging through this series is called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. But in there, she talks about that. It, well, she talks about that you need to make an apprenticeship of sorrow, that it becomes a teacher that you live with your whole life. But in order to do that, you have to learn a kind of you have to engage a steady practice that, that fortifies you to be able to allow grief and sorrow in as a companion. And so I wonder as you're recommending or you know, imagining a world where we are engaging the heartbreak in a pretty robust way, what are the practices that you think fortify to make that even possible? I, uh, I do. I 
do a little whitewater rafting. And I took a swiftwater rescue course once. And they had us, this is in the Arkansas River at the end of spring. So tons of water coming through. And the whole course took place in the river, not in boats in the river. And one of the first exercises we had to do was walk out as far as we could into this raging whitewater by ourselves. And there's a technique for doing that. And then we slowly added people. And by the time we had about six rescuers moving out into the water, it was amazing how stable and how easily we could move into this terrifying and powerful current. And in some ways in my mind, that is religion at its very best. So, you know, I engage in a practice of owning my brokenness. I engage in a practice of corporate confession. I engage in a practice of sort of communal discernment about where God, the universe, the spirit might be leading us. I can do that in a way when I'm with people that I simply can't sustain on my own. There's something that happens in, in communities of faith and religious sort of bound in the best way possible communities where we can't allow ourselves to forget, right? Like there is maybe the great sin of, of well, in my own life is my promptability to forget the harm I've done. Now there's a difference, like we, you know, never forget 9-11. Okay, great. We can get hung up in that maybe misplaced rage and think it's all about justice and striking it to our enemies. Or we can remember the brokenness, the, the lost lives, the pain of that day. We can also remember what was our part as a country and the events that led up to that. And I am not, in no way am I rationalizing what the people who destroyed the Twin Towers did, but there's an aspect of in communities, it is, it is harder, it can be harder to forget. And I think some of this work involves, we can't forget this sort of ability to engage in sorrow requires, I think, a slowing down, a groundedness that happens in communities of faith in a way that it simply does not happen in society at large, because society at large wants us to uh, buy more, do more, connect more, I would argue, in an effort to forget or to ignore. And so, so I think one of the great gifts that communities of faith have is this ability to, to, to hold space where we can engage in this difficult work that I would argue can only really happen with other human people. You know what came to mind as you were talking, Joseph, Elie Wiesel's notion of God and the, the idea of God is just the act of remembering. And, and, you know, just how I think it's such a powerful idea right now in what I experience as cultural amnesia in a lot of ways and historical amnesia. And what I know about amnesia and that, that notion of forgetting, it is a trauma response. And so, and so then as we in, in religious institutions or as um, people of faith respond to that impulse, we can remember that it's as, as Resmo Menachem talks about that you're not, it, you're not uh, defective, you're protective. Hmm. So yes. that we are, we have not, we are not failures in forgetting. We protected ourselves really well. Yeah. so that we could survive. Yeah. And so then as we, uh, you know, peel the onion <laughs> of this pain, we are, 
we have to be tender with ourselves and with each other because that that act of forgetting and then trying to remember was protective yeah and and how do we how do we create room for remembering that doesn't turn into self-flagellation right like like I'm not at all advocating for places where we are constantly reminded of all the terrible things we did or did not. And we need spaces where we can explore that stuff and exploring it with an aim toward not forgetting, but what does redemption look like? Um, what does reconciliation look like? And I think we have opportunity to do a better job at how do we how do we create room to acknowledge, to refuse to forget, but always with an eye toward, toward grace? One of my favorite, one of the very few things I remember from uh, my time in seminary was a, a quote by Karl Barth, who wrote like thousands of pages in this famous work called The Church Dogmatics, of which I did not read. But there is a dogmatics and outline that he wrote, which is like his cliff notes. And I don't remember anything from that book either, except for this one line where he's, he's talking about in the Christian tradition, this notion of grace. And he said, and that is grace, the movement from narrowness into spaciousness. So grace is this movement from narrowness into spaciousness. And if I had to sort of say my great hope for any community of faith, is that we might always move from narrowness into spaciousness. I would say that's my hope for any institution. That's my hope for the police. That's my hope for our elected officials, that, that we, would, we would be aware both of the narrowness where we currently are, but also the spaciousness of where the universe is calling us to be. And, and I just think that language, that imagery of, 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 sort of this constant movement. One, it frees us to simply engage in the work, right? Like, I don't know what it looks like to get to spaciousness, but I know it's maybe not exactly where I am now, but hopefully my life, my orientation, the way I engage with the world is a little bit more spacious than it was five years ago. I, I love that. And I think it's really, I think it's a beautiful invitation. I want to think about with you where we are seeing, where we would we think about our, our local community that you and I both know pretty well and serve and love and care deeply about those local relationships and the, our neighbors. Would you say that, you know, how are we doing on making space here? And what's the, the path we're on hmm. here as it relates to creating spaciousness? Yeah. I, I mean, I, although, I mean, I certainly have thoughts, but, you know, I have thoughts as someone who lives in a decent house with a two income family and Fort Collins is amazing. I mean, we moved here on purpose because we heard it was a cool town. And seven years ago, we moved here for all the reasons that many of the people I would imagine listening to this conversation moved here. And the reality is it is, it is a good place to live for a lot of us, but it is not a just and generous and expansive place for all of us. You know, we live in this world where too often it's, well, either things are perfect or things are terrible. And 
I'm not, I mean, things are terrible in a lot of ways. Things have never been perfect. We've got to learn to be able to hold sometimes opposed things at once, right? So we can say we have a fairly robust system for taking care of homeless people. We do not generally have neighbors who are experiencing homelessness die on the street all that often. It does happen. It shouldn't happen at all. And it's not enough for us to say we're doing okay because these are human lives at stake. It's not enough for us to listen to public figures say, well, our police department's really good. Our police department might be okay, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't and couldn't and must be better. And so I love that we live in a community though, where I can call the chief of police or I can call the mayor. You know, the first place I served was Austin, Texas, which is, uh, you know, several million, at least the central Texas region is millions of people. And unless you have a special in it's harder to affect change than it is in this town. I love that there are there are people who work with our neighbors experiencing homelessness who know the name of almost every homeless person in the to me that is both hopeful. I think it's a sign of we have people in this town who care and it is a problem that can be solved. I oftentimes say that if we can't get it right here, no one can get it right. And that is both a hopeful statement for me to make and a little bit of a despairing statement for me to make because I think we are we have we have faith leaders I mean like yourself and the many of the people you work with at Foothills there's a great group of engaged faith leaders in this town who want the very best and who are able to interact with those with kind of controlling the levers of power we are a good sized town with enough people and enough energy to make positive change in the world, we also can be very, very sure of ourselves in Fort Collins. And I think ultimately that is being sure of ourselves is quite could lead to our demise. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of space confessing our failures. Like then that does seem to, when I think about it, about Fort Collins, that is not something that it's not very culturally present in our culture and here we we what we do instead is we say we're learning i think it's a very high like there's a learning orientation in fort collins and and we're trying we're we're learning we're trying and and sometimes that trying doesn't ever get to an outcome and yeah. there's not an accountability around the outcomes. You know, I think Fort Collins is, we have a strong identity of being happy. It's a happy place to be. And that investment of being happy doesn't really make a lot of space for the pain. And to incorporate pain into Fort Collins identity, which is just not, it's, that's not how we identify. We identify as it's good here. It's happy here. Fort Collins, there's nothing wrong with Fort Collins. Fort Collins is great. We're learning, we're trying, we're trying to be better. And that, like that investment in that identity to me is something we need to break down and be okay with, with, with having pain here. That part of what it means to be yeah. in Fort Collins is to be managing pain. Yeah, and, and to acknowledge the, the grief that comes with that, right? Because to some degree, I don't think this is too strong of language, but it, that story is a lie. 
And I think there is some grief that will come with owning the lie that this is a perfect place. We can go one of two ways. We can uh, move forward and hope that things could be different, or we can go down the path of despair and never come back. My hope is that we have a critical mass of leadership and citizens in this city that would be willing to move in the direction toward hope. But we can't do that if we don't acknowledge the lie and the grief that comes from our complicity and and buying into it. And I think there's freedom that comes from, this is hard work and it doesn't have to be despairing work. There will be moments of despair, but together we can move in ways that that lead us into spaciousness. We can uh, stand in the swift moving waters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, I think that's what communities of faith at their best have to offer. There is so much goodness in this conversation. I think we could spend days on just little bits of it, unpacking the, the wisdom for life. You know, as Joseph said, that rage, grief, and goodness is really the foundations of the human condition. And I loved the ways that they spoke about confession, that confession isn't about self-flagellation, but about accountability. And it's only real if it leads to tangible change. If confession doesn't lead to tangible change, if rage doesn't actually move us forward, we need to figure out what practices actually fortify our capacity. With the world that is so filled with brokenness and evil and pain, figuring out how our lives actually move us towards change, to, to expand that goodness. I love how Joseph talks about communities of faith as communities that allow us to never forget, to never forget both our the pain, but also our responsibility and our resilience, and to help us with that movement from, from narrowness to, to spaciousness. I know I got a lot out of this conversation, and if there's someone in your life that you think would appreciate this conversation, I invite you to share this podcast with them. Podcasts are a great way to, to spark conversation. Another place to go for conversation is Deeper Online. Deeper Online is the online space where we get to connect with other members of the community. Last week, there was this great conversation stemming from Reverend Elizabeth Wynn's conversation on grief. People were sharing how they struggled to actively, how grief is a struggle, that they've become, that they're masters of bottling it up, but now they're starting to notice when they're starting to withdraw. There's also some great conversations about the use of music, and also how that you don't need to process grief all at once. That You can carry little pieces with you. It's a really rich conversation. And so I, I'd love for you to join our online community at Deeper Online. You can pop over to tinyurl.com slash deeperuu, and there you can sign up and join the conversation. Next week on the podcast, we're going to take a break from our interviews, and we'll be joined by the Reverend Kelly Dignan. Kelly is a spiritual companion and UU minister who currently lives in Denver. She was recently the minister at the UU Church in Boulder, but now works as a spiritual companion for all people who want to grow spiritually, experience oneness, and act to create more love and justice in the world. Kelly is a Kelly is a beloved preacher in our congregation at Foothills, and I know you're going to enjoy spending time with her as we unpack and play in this in this metaphor of water for our water communion celebration. I really want to say thank you to those of you that have been a part of giving to Foothills, because you are what makes this podcast possible. 
You have, through your giving, you've allowed us to come up with ideas like this, to put them together, to invest our time in it. If you don't already support our work here at the Foothills Unitarian Church, we invite you to join in this effort to make especially a recurring donation. That allows us to keep providing these sorts of messages that allow us to go deeper into our lives and to unleash courageous love, not just in Northern Colorado, but far, far beyond. Your donation makes it possible to keep going with this sort of discourse and is exactly what our world needs in these days. You can go to foothillsuu.org forward slash give, and it shows you all the different ways that you can support our mission and our work together. And thank you. Thanks for listening to this, our third episode of The Deeper Podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your listening experience. You know, we're experimenting, taking the goodness of Sunday mornings and building it out in this podcast experience that you can listen to on the go. So drop us a line at deeperpod, that's deeper, P-O-D, at foothillsuu.org and let us know if this is striking a chord or what opportunities do you think we could take advantage of in this space? We can't wait to hear from you. Well, until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.